This gun of the hand is for the taking of human life. We believe it is wrong to take life. That is only for God. Many times wars have come. And people have said to us, you must fight, you must kill. It is the only way to preserve the good. But Samuel, there is never only one way. Remember that. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Welcome back to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1985's Witness, directed by Peter Weir and written by Earl Wallace and William Kelly, starring Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Here's a clip from Witness. Hey, man. They didn't know there was a witness. Carter didn't tell me about the eyewitness. Yeah, Amish kid, eight years old. A man of force. I'm a police officer, ma'am. I have to talk to the boy. A woman of faith. You don't understand. We have nothing to do with your laws. Yes, I do. Your son's a material witness to a homicide. Worlds apart. Now you have a witness. Yeah, now I got a witness. John, what's going on, man? What is happening? You said we would be safe in Philadelphia. Well, I was wrong. He left with the Amish woman, right? If they find me, they find the boy. You bring this man to our house? With his gun of the hand, you bring fear to this house. Everyone has an idea about you and the Englishman. They're looking for you. <laughs> I have done nothing against the rule of the Ordnance. Nothing? Maybe not yet. We know where you are. Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Witness. All right, that was a clip from 1985's Witness. Uh, again, this the movie is directed by Peter Weir and stars Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Harrison Ford plays a Philadelphia, I believe it's a Philadelphia cop. I know he's a Pennsylvania cop um, who is. It takes on the case of a murder, a cop murder that happens to have been witnessed by a little Amish boy played by Lucas Haas and whose mother is played by Kelly McGillis. Uh, when some of the internal police corruption is revealed, Harrison Ford is forced to flee the city and it goes and lives on the Amish farm with uh, Kelly McGillis's family. And in the meantime, he is being hunted by his former boss or his boss and uh, some of his colleagues. Uh, so it's kind of a kind of a thriller mixed with a love story. Uh, anyway, that's my sort of take on, on Witness, Rick. Yes, I'm really glad you picked this movie. And when you first pitched it, I was, like, confused because maybe I misread it or maybe you wrote the title as The Witness. And there's so many movies oh. titled The Witness. And I'm like, which 
movie, right? But this movie is specifically called Witness, in case anybody wants to Google it. So the reason why I'm so glad you picked this movie is because I'm a huge fan of Peter Weir. I think he's a fantastic director, incredibly talented. I love The Picnic at Hanging Rock, Master of Commander, The Last Wave, etc., etc. The thing about Witness is it's odd that a film that garnered so much critical acclaim, so much praise, won so many awards, was nominated for like eight Oscars, I think. It was eight or five or something like that. No, it was it was like six to eight. It was the first film that he directed outside of Australia. It gave him his first Oscar nomination. It features Harrison Ford's best performance. It's a Agreed. really good crime thriller. And yet, very few people talk about this movie, including including fans of the director, Peter Weir. Yeah, I feel like some of his other uh, his earlier stuff gets a lot of play, and, and rightly so. Like you said, Picnic at Hanging Rock and uh, you know uh, Gallipoli I like and The Year of Living Dangerously. Uh, those seem to get a little more time. Uh, even stuff like The Mosquito Coast gets a little more play. But we're, of course, you know, The Truman Show and uh, Master and Commander were his two biggest recent hits. Uh, and sadly, he doesn't direct all that often, and I, I don't believe he has anything slated. He is one of the true true old-fashioned talents out there just a masterful craftsman this movie could have been a generic standard police thriller and judging by the original screenplay and what i've read and the fact that they revised the original screenplay like six times it was Mm -hmm. and maybe that could have been action-packed and somewhat exciting but still generic but peter weir who initially turned down the offer because he was knee-deep in pre-production for the mosquito coast but then that movie got delayed because of some sort of like financial issue. Like they couldn't get the financial they, backing. Exactly. Yep. And only when Harrison Ford later came on because they were talking about it on the set of witness, Harrison Ford came on and that's when they got the finance financing for mosquito coast. Right. Which is crazy because so many studios turned down the movie because they didn't think that a movie that took place mostly in the Amish countryside would actually be marketable, which makes sense. Uh, and Sylvester Sloan turned her down, um, Clint Eastwood turned down the role, Jack Nicholson, uh, the list goes on and on. But then, yeah, Harrison Ford was looking to do something outside of action movies. He stepped in. I'm pretty sure it helps that he was a carpenter because there's an incredible scene that revolves around them building a house. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But the point is he he stepped in and he insisted on focusing heavily on the love story Changing the point of view of the character, because the original screenplay was really in the point of view of Rachel. It was her movie, mm -hmm. and he decided to make it Harrison Ford's character, um, Book. He wanted to make a John, Book's movie, John Book. John Book. By the way, yep. Book is a terrible name for a character, if only because <laughs> I was writing about the article, and every time I write Book, like it seems like I made an error. And so, uh, yeah, so it's it's just it's because it, it's it doesn't feel natural when you're reading like a film review and you say something like books, character arc. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> well, this movie. OK, so I, I always take his name to be it's very plain. Right. And that goes along with kind of the Amish thing and why he can maybe sort of fit in so well. It also sounds very English and they call him English, uh, of course. Uh, and I, one of the reasons that I picked this movie was first it's, it's had its anniversary uh, in February. So I thought that was, a, yeah, I, I thought that it was appropriate to talk about this. It's one of my favorite uh, sort of cop cop movies of all time, even though 
honestly, the cop stuff almost plays like background to the the love story, which I think was a fantastic decision. Uh, the tension is all still there. It's just that uh, there's different there's tension on different levels in this movie, but it's also very. It is about as exquisitely crafted as a plain – it is a plain movie. It is plain in the best sense of the word. I do not mean that it is boring. I mean that it is – it doesn't try to be flashy at any point. It's a very earthy uh, kind of movie, like organic kind of movie that fits the subject matter so well. And it's also a very adult love story, I think. that That's one of the things I like about it the most. These, these people are adults. We don't get any uh, – you know – sarcasm or the, the drama that you normally get in movie relationships this is a love story that feels very very real well and speaking of the love story like the thing is what i like about the love story being sort of like at the center of the film is this might sound odd but it provides the audience with an additional layer of suspense so to speak because we as the viewers we wonder will they end up a couple will she betray her religion would she even survive is she going to get killed you know what I mean? And I'm, I don't want to. Well, I mean, this is a like when we when we discuss movies on this podcast, listeners be warned. We do spoil things, but for now, I'll just I won't say what happens at the end in case anyone wants to tune out. But the romance between Harrison Ford, his character John Book, and Kelly McGillis's Rachel, is handled with grace, realism, restraint. It's subtle, and take for example the. The scene in which she appears topless. Okay, so granted, she is topless in one scene in the movie. But for mm -hmm. the most part, the director, Peter Weir, he holds back. There's just a lot of um, restraint here. And so he, he opted for, I think, a gentle approach to the romance by allowing the actors to express what they are feeling as actors using, for example, their eyes, their facial expressions, their physical mannerisms. Not necessarily dialogue and not, say directing a really erotic sweaty sex scene and mm -hmm. that that scene that scene even though she's topless it's so beautifully written and directed and this is a hollywood crime thriller made in the 80s <laughs> and that that scene feels like it, it feels like some high prestige victorian drama set in the 18th century uh, you know what I mean? Like, like that's what I mean about Peter Weir. Like, you put him as a director of a Hollywood crime thriller, and the end result is a movie that's unlike any Hollywood crime thriller I've ever seen. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that scene up because there, throughout this movie, Weir uh, sacrifices dialogue for expressions, facial expressions, and and movement, body language. And in that particular scene, there is an entire story going on as if they were talking. That just takes place between the looks in their eyes and the subtle motions of their heads. For instance, when she turns around and reveals herself, she's washing. And and Peter Weir does a fantastic job throughout the movie of really focusing on the the natural elements. And so when somebody is, you know, uh, sopping a, pol a poultice or, or, you know, whether the grass is blowing in the wind or he really captures the, the dirt and the the water and just the earthiness of every single motion. But when she turns around and reveals herself to him, Harrison Ford's first John Book's first reaction is to look down, kind of ashamed, right? And it's sort of a challenge. Like she's basically challenging him at that point to to get romantic with her. He ends up walking away from the situation and she ends up kind of 
in a way, resenting him for it. And it all takes place within this completely dialogueless scene that you have to just be watching every single little motion of their heads, like I say, and the, and the looks in their eyes. And it's fantastic. There's so much going on here. Uh, so I have a quote but, from Peter Weir from an interview. Mm -hmm. He says, in the good old days, there was a considerable amount of film censorship. So movie makers had to be very inventive in the way they showed sexual attraction. It resulted in some wonderful romantic moments. What I've done is reimpose the Hayes Code on myself. Mm -hmm. So he, like, like, and that's the thing, like, when you think of some of the greatest romantic comedies ever made, or some of the greatest dramas or love stories, a lot of these movies were made prior to, say, 1980. Yeah, and the Hayes Code, for anybody that doesn't know, they had some bizarre rules. Like, if a man and a woman are on a bed at the same time, each of them had to have at least one foot on the ground. Or Hitchcock's famous notorious scene where he has them two, you know, Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant kiss for about four minutes. Well, that was against the Hayes Code, but you could only kiss for about, I believe it was like 20 seconds or something like that. So Hitchcock just made up a four-minute scene where they kiss for 20 seconds, then they take a break, then they kiss for 20 more seconds, then they take a break. And he would stand there with a, with a stopwatch, making sure that they did not go over the maximum limit, but, some, but circumventing the rules creatively just to get his scene across that he wanted but you can see what Peter, how Peter Weir has done that other than the topple scene, which, of course, would not have been Hayes Code approved. <laughs> but everything else, yeah, this love story, like there isn't – it's a very old-fashioned love story in the sense that there is no sex scene. The big moment you get is just simply an embrace and a kiss, and that's it. But it, it's like the floodgates open at that moment. It's what a true ro romance – it, it, what romance in movies really should do. It, it kind of raises you know you up. Uh, and it doesn't have to do it with anything explicit. It does it. And that scene, again, no dialogue, none. <laughs> and yet you understand exactly what these characters are going through. So this movie is amazing. It's amazing. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. Go watch it. Come back and listen to the podcast. A bit of history. Here's the thing. I knew you would pick this movie because of the screenplay. It has like one of the best screenplays. You said it's very simple and plain. Yes. Structured. Yes, but it's tightly knitted. It's it's incredibly, incredibly structured. It doesn't have any over-the-top action scenes. It isn't convoluted. It doesn't have like a twist ending, but it's solid from start to finish. It's crazy how they made a Hollywood crime thriller slash mystery slash fish out of water movie because like a good chunk of this movie is a fish out of water movie you got harrison ford moving to the amish countryside he's a police detective who lives in philadelphia uh, sorry is it philadelphia no pittsburgh is it pittsburgh okay it pittsburgh? i, I do know it's pennsylvania i think it's i, I think it's i think it's philadelphia actually anyhow i'm canadian so i can get away with it so <laughs> so yeah so they have like the biggest action movie star i think because he was in indiana jones and star wars at the time they put him in a Hollywood crime thriller, which really turns more into like a fish out of water slash uh, love story. And there's no over the top action sequences. It's it's just like again restraint, right? But here here's here's the weird thing about about this movie because like I mentioned the screenplay and how good it is, and like you being a screenplay writer, of course you're gonna gravitate towards a movie that has a good script. So this movie is written by three people: William Kelly, Pamela, and Earl W. Wallace who they, Pamela and Earl, were two TV veterans. But none of these people ever wrote a screenplay for a major motion picture before or after. So somehow they wrote one of the best scripts of 1985 and yet never wrote another great script ever again, at least not for 
the big screen. That is amazing. Yeah, I believe they walked away with the Oscar for best screenplay. As they well. did, yeah, and not just the Oscar. They won the the Writers Guild Award. I believe mm-hmm. they were nominated for the Golden Globes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this was based sort of on an old TV show that they had done for an episode for Bonanza. Yeah. Uh, that, that revolved around the Amish. And the original screenplay was about, like, what, hundred it was 192 pages long or something like that? 182? So, it was yeah. too long. <laughs> it was too long. But the thing is, is, like, they revised the screenplay before Peter Weir came on board. And they mm-hmm. made the screenplay shorter. When Peter Weir came on board, he claims in an interview that there was a rumor saying that they had eliminated 40 pages screenplay. And he's like, no, it was actually only two pages. It was towards the end of the movie because they had this whole big dialogue sequence between the two ma- main characters. And he's like, we yep. don't need that. We, he's like, we understand what they feel. We understand the end result. He's going to walk away. They will not end up in a relationship. And it's a very quiet, like a lot of scenes in this movie, a lot, a lot of the best scenes in this movie are very quiet. And there's very little, if no dialogue. But it's, it's, it's just interesting how like, Peter Weir was the first choice for the producer, Edward S. Feldman. He wanted Peter Weir. He was a huge fan of his movies. Uh, at that point in time, he had made four movies, I believe, all in Australia, including, again, The Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is incredible if you haven't seen it. And the the, the thing that's uh, odd about this movie for Peter Weir is that usually Peter Weir would, would write all of his screenplays and or at least write the story. He was very hands-on in the script. Now, he liked the script enough to take the job but he really wanted a rewrite and so that is when he requested i won't say demand but he requested that they rewrite the screenplay yet again and focus more on the idea of like a police detective who goes into hiding to protect a young boy in the Amish country so it becomes his point of view his story not her story and he wanted to take the story in a more intellectual direction and re- request and I love that word intellectual <laughs> more intellectual <laughs> direction and he requested that they rewrite the script to focus on the comparison of passism and violence and the reason why I say this Patrick is because I've never seen a movie Especially a Hollywood film, especially a Hollywood action thriller, crime film, mystery, whatever you want to call it. I've never seen a Hollywood crime thriller in which at the very end of the movie, the main villain, the bad guy, decides to give up. Decides to (laughs) put down his guns, avoid (laughs) any more violence, and just turn over to being a pacifist. I, I, and that's you may never see that again either. You may never see that again. And this is what I mean by being this. This is a very adult movie. These are these feel like real people, and it's not cartoonish villain. You know, a cartoonish villain. This guy is going. He's feeling the, his own squeeze because he's been found out by by his uh, his friend and colleague, and it drives him to to try to murder his own friend. But yes, in the end, he's talked out of killing any more people. He can't do it anymore. And it's not that he's a good guy. He is absolutely a villain, 100, 100%. But he's not a cartoon character. He is a He's portrayed as a person. There's a great moment when Harrison Ford calls him up and tells him that he's coming for him. And you see the look of worry on this guy's face. He tries to play it cocky, but he really, really is genuinely scared and worried. And that's a, that's a real person. That's how you take that's how you get away from this this idea that the villain has to be this completely evil through and through you know non-human being who's never worried about anything who only thinks about doing bad things their entire life no this guy had a family he was worried for himself he was scared 
and it led him to try to, to murder his his former friend. And uh, yeah, I, you, you'll never see that again. I, I highly doubt you'll ever see a cop movie end this way, the way this movie ends. Ladies and gentlemen, what you have here is you have a movie called The Witness that went from being a standard cop movie to become a semi-pacifist thriller with a swooning romance. And at its core, it follows star-crossed lovers who begin to question the very foundation of their own lives. Like, it's just bizarre. Like, like in 2020, I can't imagine anyone making this movie. In fact, The Witness, like I said, it's so much more. It's a thriller. Yes. It's a love story. Yes. It's a crime flick. Yes. It's a fish out of water story. Yes. But it also examines like the clashing cultures in a modern world because a good portion of the movie, like specifically the first act, takes place in the big city. And the rest of the movie takes place in the Amish countryside. I also think it's really interesting that the movie is called Witness and not The Witness because it sort of implies that we are witnessing something. Mm -hmm. And I, I really do think that they specifically took out the word the or a or like a uh, like specifically want to call it witness. Um, do you know how much money this movie made? It was a pretty big hit, yeah. if I remember right. Uh, I know Beverly Hills Cop was out that same year so that was clearly the biggest hit of the year but i know witness you know that was a big hit it was harrison ford he was kind of you know he was just at the peak of his popularity starting starting the peak of his popularity and this is before kelly mcgillis starred in top gun but to be fair yes. harrison ford so box office draw it came in second at the box office number two right behind beverly hills cop which got released on the same week but what's crazy is and again we don't see this ever happen the movie stayed in the number two spot for four weeks. And then on the fifth week, it, it jumped to the number one spot. So, you know, nowadays it's all about opening weekend, specifically those first two days. And then the movie just dies. This movie made it to the number one spot after five weeks and started making more money after five weeks being at the box office. That's like sort of like the only other movie I can think of that that sort of like accomplished the same sort of like numbers at the box office was Titanic. Titanic, Titanic made yeah. money at the start, but it only became the number one movie, I think, three or four weeks in. Yeah, and it stayed that way forever. Uh, it stayed on the top ten for absolute forever. And this is definitely – Witness is a word-of-mouth movie, and I – I think restraint is a great way of describing this movie, how much restraint there is in the, both the characters as written on the page and also in the filmmaking. But, you know, it, it's also it deals with an Amish culture that's restrained. Uh, it's it is it, it doesn't look it also takes the adult approach of realizing that there are two different lifestyles at play here and it doesn't judge either one of them as necessarily wrong. Books world is a different world. It is a world of violence and, you know, other other things that would that that uh, the Amish people would disapprove of, but that doesn't mean that the movie disapproves of his world, and that's why he goes back to it in the end. He belongs there, and that's his world. And it also takes a, a, a it doesn't necessarily romanticize the Amish lifestyle either. It shows a sense of community, which you know can be is a huge draw, but it also shows some of the ways in which they can be very judgmental. There's a scene in which uh, Rachel's. Uh, I believe her father, they know that's never made explicitly clear, but his name is Eli. Um, he basically threatens her with being expunged from the community. If she continues on with her, you know, the, she's not even having a relationship with book, but just merely the thought that she might have a relationship with an outsider and not in, and kind of go against, you know, their, their, uh, their community. He threatens that she may be expunged and he wouldn't be able to talk to her and he wouldn't be able to, to even hand her an object. 
anymore. Uh, she wouldn't be able to take something from his hand. And so it, it shows that these people are also repressing themselves in many ways, that, that both cultures are repressing themselves in different ways. Um, and I think that the, the, the restrained style of the movie really, really speaks to that. Is this the Ordnum? I have done nothing against the rule of the Ordnum. Nothing? You bring this man to our house with his gun of the hand? You bring fear to this house? Fear of English with guns coming after? I've committed no sin. Maybe. Maybe not yet. But Rachel, it does not look. You know, there has been talk. Talk about going to the bishop and having you shunned. It is idle talk. Oh, do not take it lightly, Rachel. They can do it. They can do it just like that. You know what it means, shunning. I cannot sit at table with you. I cannot take a thing from your hand. I cannot go to worship with you. Oh, child. Do not go so far. I'm not a child. But you are acting like one. I'll be the judge of that. No. They will be the judge of that, and so will I. If you shame me. Like, the premise itself is a great sell. Like, you have this young boy, in this case he's Amish, he witnesses a crime at the train station... And it turns out it's a corrupt cop, and therefore the police detective played by Harrison Ford has to protect the kid and go in hiding. Great premise, but the Amish angle to it isn't like a gimmick. Like, the Amish community, their traditions, their customs, the way of life, it becomes a crucial part of the movie. And because of this, most of the pivotal scenes tend to unfold in a quiet, steady pace. It's a very quiet movie at times for, once again, what is a Hollywood crime thriller. So Peter Weir being Peter Weir, fantastic director, he's not interested in rushing the audience through the narrative. Uh, he relies on the actors. It helps he has an incredible cast. And not just the two leads, but the, the whole supporting. cast. The whole, whole cast. cast, yeah. yeah. And... Of course, you have Maurice Ajare, his incredible score. This guy's like one of the great movie composers. He actually won the Oscar. I was wondering what you were going to think of the score, because there are some people who might think that this is a very 80s score. I think this is a timeless score that, that sort of imparts this dreamlike quality, because for Harrison Ford's character, it is almost a dream. He's not going to be living here for the rest of his life. This is kind of like a little visit to to another world, and I feel like Maurice Jarre's score has this otherworldly feel to it, that this isn't real for Book. This is some kind of strange land that he's visiting, and he'll only be visiting. He does not, he's never going to stay here, and the music has a strangeness that, uh, that gets that across. Which, which makes sense, because he's a stranger in a strange land, and if anyone questions the score, I urge you to go on YouTube and watch him compose the score live. It is amazing. Anyhow, so the director manages to slow things down, which I find incredibly refreshing because nowadays in 2020, watching any sort of like crime thriller, usually it's over the top. It's cluttered with action and convoluted 
uh, subplots and storylines that don't make any sense, and it it's fast paced. And as much as I love Tony Hawk, uh, Tony Hawk, Tony Scott, you know, it ends up being something like Domino, right? Mm-hmm. You're <laughs> uh, right, exactly. Yeah, but but with this movie, it's not. Um, and I like how the movie, the director, the screenplay writers, everyone involved treats the Amish with respect and sympathy and pride, and yet not apologizing for their decisions their lifestyle but yet like you said they're not pointing the finger um they're not condemning them like it's just they are who they are and that is it and it's not peter weir's best film but i think in many ways it's his best work because it's okay. like it's easy to watch a movie like Master and Commander and just be completely blown away just because of the spectacle, right? Like the whole movie is mm-hmm. great, the like screenplay, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like it's like a big production. This is like the, most of this movie takes place in the Amish countryside. Um, so in a way, it might have been easier for him to make this movie. But yet he does these incredible things like when they build a barn with the whole entire community. Of course, using Harrison Ford's skills as a carpenter. Scenes like that. I mean, come on. It's amazing. Yeah, he basically – one of the great things that I love about Peter Weir is that he's got a mastery of the land. He knows how to evoke the land or the environment. And he does that in Master and Commander, and it's really easy to get in, absorbed into his worlds because of the way that he photographs or you know has has the accepts that the the earth has a presence in these stories, and that's really on display in the Amish countryside and the way he photographs it. And then, and in fact, at the very beginning of the movie, uh, when the the Amish are all going to a funeral, uh, Rachel's husband has just died. The, the way the grass is blowing and the characters almost seem to the, – the Amish people almost seem to grow out of the grass. So you don't see them in, in this in this shot. You just see the tips of the wavy grass blowing. And then soon enough, you start seeing hats and heads bobbing over the grass. And it almost seems like they're springing from the earth. And he really uh, – he does a, a lot of stuff like that with the – like the, the barn building scene. He focuses really on the – the landscape around them, the dirt, the soil, the the wood, the the shavings, you see the sawdust, you see all the little pieces that actually go, the earthy pieces that go into constructing something like that, building something like that with limited technology. This is an old-fashioned way of doing things. And I, I love that about all his movies. Master and Commander, that was one of the big reasons why I love that movie is because you just sort of got absorbed into this ship ship life with the creaking and the, the swinging hammocks and, and all the different, you know, the textures of the cannons and all that kind of stuff. And it's the same here in Witness. He just has a really good eye for details like that, that that draw you into this world. And it's the same thing when he's when he's photographing the streets of Philadelphia, too, how they're 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 grimy and they're slick. And they're, there's a, they're a little more threatening. They're a little more risky. They're a little more dangerous. And you can see how somebody coming from the, the lush, green, countryside, safe countryside environment could feel a lot of tension and fear being in this concrete jungle that, is, uh, that just seems slippery. It's a slippery slope every way you look. Uh, he's really good at, at, at picking out details that convey those tones. Well, now would be a good time to talk about the cinematographer, John Seal, who is an Academy Award cinematographer. You might know him for his work in, say, The English Patient. He's fantastic. So I love the way he shoots the film. Because take, for example, the second scene in which Sam, Samuel, and his mom make their first trip away from the Amish countryside to the big city. 
And it's shot in a way where the camera's placed mostly at the boy's height. So it's sort of like his point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the way he frames these shots, it's to enhance the, gr- the grand proportions of the train station, for example. So if we're not seeing his point of view, instead what we are given is these incredible shots, for example, a bird's eye view showing Samuel surrounded by hundreds of strangers passing him by in the train station. He looks lost. He looks like he's lost at sea. And you have this moment where he sees a statue of angels. And so he walks by, he stops, he looks up really high. Remember, this is a young boy. And the way he juxtaposes the two camera shots, the high angle and the low angle, the reverse shot, and you see the boy just staring at the the statues of angels. It just reflects the overwhelming feeling that this boy has and what he's experiencing because it's the first time he's in like this big city. And then you get like these shots of the point of view of his mom who watches the world through his fresh gaze, right? And mm-hmm. I, I just like that is like the most like it's it's like the least, you know, I won't say the least interesting point of the film, but it's just basically them traveling to a train station and yet he finds the most interesting ways to shoot it and i you you mentioned the difference between the countryside and the way he shoots philadelphia so okay clearly it's easier to make the countryside look dirty and grimy and busy because i sorry the city because it's a city right mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. you still got to credit the, the the cinematographer because he used different lenses different style of photography like the way he captures the modern day urban way of life and the 18th century amish lifestyle is completely th- different like the city is cold it's busy it's claustrophobic whereas the countryside is open it's calm it has more like clearly autumn colors it's 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 just more peaceful which again you're going to get that no matter what because you're in that setting. But they could have easily gone into the countryside and made it very claustrophobic, but they chose not to. No, and they has a lot of like what you would almost consider classic Western shots, you know, where there are silhouettes, people walking against the horizon, um, just showing the vastness of the landscape around them, the the open open spaces that is kind of freeing, right? And that's kind of the point. That the, though the, the Amish in this movie are uh, repressed, they're also kind of free from many of the worries and the the, the stress that uh, big city people like John Book have. And those wide open spaces kind of reinforce that. Whereas in the, in the city shots, he, everything is a little more claustrophobic, obviously because cities are, are more claustrophobic and more crowded. And, and, you know, you know, when Samuel walks through the police station, which again, he shoots at, at his height so that you see a lot of weights, right? A lot of wastes of adults, but uh there's just so everything's packed. The office looks packed and you can tell he's using a zoom to make it look more packed than it really is where all the desks seem almost right up against each other. Uh, the whole office seems just jammed together and these people are existing in this tiny little space uh, that this little boy is of course not used to because he's used to going down to his little brook and he's used to walking through the cornfields and you know, all that kind of stuff. The second best scene in this movie, I'm not going to mention the first best scene because we're going to talk about it after the break, but the second best scene in this movie, or at least my second favorite scene, I should say is the climax because the climax takes place in the countryside. You have book who's unarmed and he has to defend himself and defend the kid and, and his mom, Rachel, against his colleagues and his former chief officer or not well i'm not former he's still employed by the police department but whatever so the three bad guys chase him through the countryside 
And it features one of the most original on-screen kill sequences in any movie. And I'm, of course, referring to the corn silo sequence. Mm -hmm. Because it becomes clear in repeated viewings that Sam, Samuel, the little boy, earlier on takes him on a tour of the farm. So he shows them the trap door. He gives them the tools and the knowledge he needs to survive in the final moments of this film. Mm -hmm. And I never noticed that on my first viewing, which sounds stupid, but yeah. So it's like, it's a complete setup. It telegraphs what's going to happen at the end of the film. I mean, holy shit. It's pretty <laughs> it's so terrifying cool. to tell you the truth. <laughs> like it, it, it is a gruesome way to go for that guy. <laughs> it's, it, it was a really, really clever thing. And I love the way that, uh, that he also has that moment of panic when Harrison Ford thinks that he's going to get shot only when you switch to the viewpoint down below, the guy with the, the cop of the gun looking up the ladder can only see darkness up there. Uh, it, it's a brilliant little bit of panic for the audience right before the aha moment when Harrison Ford realizes that the guy is looking at the door to the silo and he kind of draws him in by throwing some corn down there to, to lure him in with the sound. It's a, and the audience also is thinking, oh, wait, get him in there. Get him in there. The, the little boy said that there was corn up there. Yeah. So there is bloodshed in the movie. There is the murder at the beginning. There is two people who die in the climax. But for the most part, it's a very quiet, subtle, um, incredibly directed, once again, and well-written thriller. But it's really impressive how Peter Weir managed to make a Hollywood crime thriller advocating peace and harmony during the Cold War era. <laughs> like, like at that time, all of these movies were like the Sylvester Stallone, Schwarzenegger, um you know, very violent sort of like action movies like Rambo or Lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson, et cetera, et cetera. And in this movie, it's about pacism versus violence. And that's a key theme of the film. And again, at the time, given that the movie stars Harrison Ford, fresh off the heels of the success of Indiana Jones and Star Wars, they somehow managed to make this movie that did not require a lot of bloodshed or violence or action packed car chase sequences. No, and the violence is very uh, considered. Uh, so it's not like you're cheering for Harrison Ford to kill everybody because you know that even he doesn't want to do that. Like, he doesn't want to have to kill all these people. And the, every act of violence is is uh, meant to be shocking as well. Like, this is it's a shock to the Amish, obviously, because that's not their way. And it's supposed to be shocking to the audience, which is why that ending works where the bad guy finally puts down his gun and refuses to commit any more violence. I mean, if this movie was made today and it was a director like Eli Roth, you know how that sequence would play out? So the <laughs> villagers would show up, they would stand there, watch him as he's shouting at Harrison Ford's character with the gun in his hand, and instead of putting the gun down and avoiding bloodshed, he would just start shooting everybody. <laughs> but in this exactly. movie, yeah, in this movie, we have all of the villagers watching him. They're not trying to attack him, they're not trying to interfere, and he just doesn't know what to do he's overwhelmed by the fact that they are so passive and i love how weir implies that there is a power in our ability to watch which therefore comes with the title of the movie right like there is a responsibility of these these people watching you know like it's it's interesting because nowadays when you think about it like you see this on the news all the time on someone's on um on twitter or on Facebook, they got their mobile phone. They're walking down the street. They see a crime. They see someone shoot someone or someone get stabbed or something. What, 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 what do they do? They film it. They don't mm -hmm. call 911. 
They don't try to help. They just start filming the damn thing. Like in this movie, it really, uh, it really emphasizes the power of being able to watch and how you can actually help without necessarily turning to violence. Like I just love, love the idea and of, of, of again, ending a movie in which the villain decides to give up. Yeah. He just puts the, he lets Harrison Ford have his gun and then he slumps up against the wall knowing that he's completely defeated. And you have no idea how it's all going to play out. He's arrested and I'm sure, you know, he goes to that. It is just the guy's look of utter defeat as he hands over his gun. And I, I think like, and again, it's the power of all those Amish that came to the rescue. We're also going to be witnessing. Was he willing to commit all these murders in front of these people? He couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. So it was the power of people just looking and watching and witnessing what he was what, what he was about to do and it made him turn away from it because he couldn't do it while people were watching and not because not because that many couldn't get away with it it, it it's like the guilt finally got to him because all these people were staring at him it, it's an interesting movie and like I said it handles the the past of his mangle you know very very well this is a fantastic speech that uh, the old man Eli gives to Samuel about the the handgun that that book carries and uh, what it means to, you know, to carry a gun and what a gun is used for. And the little boy, you know, at one point says that he would only kill bad people. And the old man makes a, a great point about how do you know who the bad people are? Um, but it's a good little back and forth. And, and, and Book, obviously, you know, there's there's another scene that we'll talk about later where Book uh, resorts back to his ways of violence. And, you know, Eli tells him that violence is not their way. But Book says, but it's my way. Uh, yeah. Before we take a break, we should just quickly mention, of course, Lucas Haas is in this movie, his first film. I'm, I assume he's like what eight eight years old. Uh, Danny Glover is in this movie. He's one of the, mm -hmm. the 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 bad guys, one of the corrupt cops. And so Danny Glover was already in Lethal Weapon, right? At this point, uh, I believe Lethal Weapon, I believe, came after this. I I don't think that. Yeah, Lethal Weapon. Uh, I can look that up really quick. And you so, so this, this movie out. was made in 1984, released in 1985. Oh, uh, right. Exactly. And then, of course, we got Kelly McGillis once again. And, she started in Top Gun a year later. Uh, she became like... was 87. 87, right. Okay. So, so like, like, yeah. So Harrison Ford is really the star power. I mean, you can argue Danny Glover to some extent, but it's really Harrison Ford who maybe helped in drawing a big box office... Uh, uh, numbers but yeah yeah no doubt and it, it is his, his finest performance for sure um it's just a subtle nuanced performance that uh, i haven't seen him given a long time he goes through a very very big uh, range of emotions uh, and being able to restrain himself he was the perfect actor for that kelly mcgill is also outstanding for sure because it, it adds a new edge to harrison ford's persona like the serious romantic and thoughtful lover like i mean to some extent in Star Wars, his Han Solo character had sort of like a, a love interest and there was some sort of like romance there. But, you know, still, it's a sci-fi action movie. Was, no offense, it's great. It but... was light and it was popcorn. It was, there was nothing realistic about it. It was fantasy, fantasy romance. <laughs> yeah. But, but did, you, did, did you notice how like, okay, so he's like a tough cop, a police detective living in the big city. He goes to the Amish countryside to go into hiding and right away they strip him of his of his clothes right so he's just wearing this very simple plain outfit this is before he actually gets the amish outfit which by the way is another great scene and mm -hmm. and it just completely transforms his character just from what he's wearing 
And I like there there is one specific scene where because he gets shot and you know he starts bleeding to death and they have to sort of like uh, nurse him and bring him back to health. And so he's lying in the bed and he doesn't have a shirt on and he's just very vulnerable. And that's when Rachel comes to see him and it's kind of like the reverse of when he sees her topless like where she's seen him topless and it's about her gaze and it makes him vulnerable like it, it's not just because you know he's like half naked and he's wounded but he's somewhere where you know, he doesn't know anything about these people or this countryside he's like a big city cop and i just love how they make this tough guy so incredibly vulnerable to her in the specific scene so yeah he does an amazing job look guys it is I, I can't think like i love harrison ford in indiana jones is amazing you know star wars is great etc etc but i really do think that this is his best performance as an actor and it's no shit that he got nominated for an academy award has he ever won an oscar i don't know no that's the only academy award he was ever nominated for wow yeah and uh, again, it's a, it's a, such a physical performance. You're talking about how, how the clothes change him. Look at how he walks when he's in the city and he's a cop. Look at how he walks when he's on that farm. His body language changes completely. He's the outsider. He's the inferior. Everybody else is far more confident about where they stand than he is. Yeah, it's a great performance that delivers a lot of subtleties that you, that people might not pick up on at first, but they're, so they subconsciously will, and it really contributes to his character. He is also insecure. You wouldn't know that at first when you first meet him. He is the cocky cop whose sister you know, says that he, he's, he's always right about everything and believes that he's the only one that can ever help anybody. Uh, but watch his body language as he walks around the farm and it's all tentative, careful. He, he's not sure about himself anymore. He's not sure about his own worth anymore uh, because this community is just so different than the one that he's used to. Yeah, so at the start of the podcast, I said that Peter Weir was actually trying to make the Mosquito Coast at the time. And that is why he initially turned down the job offer. But because the Mosquito Coast got delayed, he made Witness. And because he made Witness, Harrison Ford decided to team up with Peter Weir again and star in Mosquito Coast. So the Mosquito Coast could have been a completely different movie had Peter Weir not directed this movie first and, and cast Harrison Ford, who, of course, wanted to work with the director yet again because he was nominated for an Academy Award. So why wouldn't you? So just crazy how things happen. Absolutely. And he turned another great performance in the Mosquito Coast, which is not as good a film as Witness, but it is still a great performance from Ford. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with our five questions about Witness. All right, here's another clip from Witness. I told Eli that you're a carpenter. Hold this up closer, will you? He said you could come to Six Barn Racing. Well, if I'm still here... That's a West Coast thing. Right. Let's have some letters on green roasts. Why not? Presenting golden oldies. We've got some great ones and some old ones Ooh. coming right up. Here's one takes me back. I'm afraid to say it dates me. Maybe it dates you. Oh. Oh. This is great. This, this is the best. Don't know much all right that was another clip from witness we are back and we're gonna 
go with our usual questions here. Uh, we've got a list of questions that we ask, just sort of pick out some some outstanding moments and maybe some less outstanding moments from this movie, uh, from any movie that we talk about. Uh, so let's kick it off with what we always kick it off with. Rick, what was your favorite scene from Witness? Wow, it's hard. It's hard. There's so many great scenes, but I think my favorite, I'm not necessarily saying it's the best, but my favorite scene is the dance scene. So there's a classic moment of movie romance. Rachel walks over to Book, John Book, Harrison Ford's detective. He's fixing his car. As he gets the engine to start working, the radio turns on, playing Greg Chapman's cover. It's Greg Chapman, not Sam Cooke. Greg Chapman's cover, Sam Cooke's What a Wonderful World. It's the first time I think Rachel's character has ever heard pop music because Amish people are not allowed to listen to the radio and listen to pop music. And she loves it. And he takes advantage of the moment and he leads her into a dance. And first of all, the scene works on so many levels. It's beautifully lit using Mm -hmm. only one or two lanterns and the headlights of the car because the car is in the barn. Beautifully lit. The best lit scene in the movie. In fact, my favorite shot is when Eli opens the barn doors and they are standing in front of the car and they turn to him, and it's like it's like a deer caught in headlights, right? Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, my God. That is, like, my favorite shot. That is one of the most beautiful shots of any movie of 1985. So you have the song playing over the radio. It's invading the Amish community. Beautiful touch. And, of course, it's great to see Harrison Ford dance and smile and just have fun in this, like, sort of, like, semi-serious movie. Uh, but the movie uh, – sorry. The scene is – significant in that it's a transition in the the romantic subplot bringing them closer but also rachel becomes more at odds with her dad we think it's the dad right eli yeah i think so it's never really clear (laughs) yeah so because he catches them in the act he, he he catches them dancing to this like song it puts her more at odds with eli and at the same time brings her closer to harrison ford's character book so it's a it's an incredibly important scene but it's also beautifully written incredibly directed and the cinematography is beautiful and of course you have two excellent performances by two incredible actors yeah it's a it's a really good scene again for all the things it basically it has no dialogue it's harrison ford occasionally singing with the song but it even when he's doing that it's the words he doesn't sing that that lend to so much as it's romantic tension in the scene he omits the word biology Whenever he's he's singing a line, he won't say that word because there's chemistry between the two of them. Um, not to mix sciences there, but uh, it's pretty clear that they are having sparks fly, and he's just um, he's nervous, and so he doesn't say certain words. And then I he didn't sort of notice that. Yeah, he'll, he'll 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 he never says it. Both times the word biology comes up, he stops singing and he doesn't say the word. Wow, uh, you know he chose the song, eh? Yes, yeah, because yeah. Uh, Peter Weir said that he was going to have to sing it, so he he would get to choose it. <laughs> and yeah, they just just the looks that they give each other and the way they sort of like there's there's a it's not not a roller coaster, but there's a rhythm to their their behavior in this where they can be happy and carefree, but then they're looking at each other and and they don't know quite what to do. They're sort of fighting their attraction a little bit. Uh, restraining themselves. This whole movie is all about restraint. <laughs> one of the reasons why I like it so much. Um, you don't like you said you don't get that in cop movies anymore. This restraint. So my 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 favorite scene 
And again, I'm not sure that you would say – I could pick almost any scene in this movie. Honestly, I love this movie so much I could pick almost any scene say it's a, the best scene in the movie. Uh, but my favorite scene is right before – so the, there's a there's a moment where Harrison Ford goes into town. Uh, a bunch of the Amish go into town. And he stops at a, a payphone booth and he wants to call and check in on his partner because his partner is aware of the corruption that's going down. But his partner doesn't know where he is, where Book is. Um, so – he calls and he gets sort of the sympathy department for the from the police department or their, their PR. And they're asking, you know, they ask a question, are you family or are you friend? And, he, and he, he's confused. He's like, what, what are you talking about? I'm just trying to get a hold of my partner, you know, this, this particular cop. And he says, you know, I'm a, I'm a friend. He doesn't give himself away. Well, the guy has died. And you knew it was coming because earlier on he had been questioned by the corrupt uh, police chief. But there's this shot. As this phone call is coming through, weird photographs just the back of Harrison Ford's head. And he also uses uh, – he kind of like uh, blacks out the corners of the frame. So you're really intensely focused on the back of Harrison Ford's head as you can just see. And somehow, without ever seeing his face, this r- rage building inside him. Uh, you can see it seething without seeing a look on his face at all. And when he turns around, you know that something is going to happen. And of course, later on it does as he encounters uh, the Amish encounter, some, some jackasses who were uh, sort of taking advantage of the fact that the Amish don't fight back and Harrison Ford, you know, beats them up a little bit. And it's not, I don't like that scene for, for like the release of, Oh, some, some goons got theirs. It's not that it's all about Harrison Ford's character. He does come from a different world, and he had been living in this Amish paradise almost, and now the real world is pulling him back. This is the world you belong in, and that 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 anger comes back because he lives in a world of violence and anger that isn't present in that Amish community, and it is his way, and he, he sort of embraces what he is. He, it's right then that he knows what he is, and he knows he will be leaving uh, the Amish countryside that he, he, he's going to be drawn back. The world is going to draw him back. And, uh, I, I love that shot of just the back of his head. One of, it's, it's one of those powerful shots to me it, it, that I, I constantly think of that shot. I just think it's great. Well, you know, it, it's, it's great when you compare it and contrast it with the actual murder that sets up the story, because at the start of the movie, we get the young boy who walks into the washroom. He's in the washroom stall and he witnesses the murder. So it's the first time he's seen any sort of like horrific moment. So the murder itself is directed in a way that we see the point of view of not just a child, but a child who's grown up in an entirely isolated and pacifist community. But anyways, whatever. Just I'm yeah. rambling here, but yeah, it's fantastic. All right. That being said, um, if you could change one thing about this movie, what would it be? Oof, I didn't even think about this. If I can change one thing about Witness, I want to say something silly like the character's name, John Book. Um, <laughs> but I kind of feel, okay, you know, what I, you know what? I know what it is. Okay, so here's the thing. So that murder sequence that I was just referring to, it's incredibly well shot and directed, and Peter Weir does a really good job in... Sort of like building the suspense, despite the fact that we know this kid is clearly not going to get caught. He's not going to die. He's not going to be in harm's way because he's a crucial element. To the, he's a crucial character moving a plot along. He's the, the witness, right, of the murder. 
Mm-hmm. Yet, the way he shoots the scene, it does build a certain amount of suspense, and it's really clever. Um, but the one thing I don't like about the scene, and this is what makes it somewhat dated, is the blood, because it looks so so fake, right? And now here's the thing. I know the movie was filmed in 1985, but I've seen plenty of movies from the 70s and the 80s, you know, specifically like horror films, where they do such a great job with the special effects. And Peter Weir is not the type of director who actually likes to show on-screen violence. In fact, uh, in an interview, he said they had a lot of uh, trouble uh, filming the scene because he he didn't even want the young boy, Lucas Haas, to actually see what was happening, right? He, mm-hmm. he was worried about the kid. This is 1985, people. Um, but, yeah, I kind of felt like, look, if you can't do the blood properly, just don't show the blood. That's it. Yeah, he, he clearly – because they, they show a throat being slit, and that's where the blood comes from. And uh... – he clearly wanted to show the shocking brutality, but yeah, it, it was, a, it's a quick shot and it's probably best that they did keep it quick because they didn't get the effect quite right. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, you think it's, of Hitchcock, like it helps that some of his, some of Hitchcock's movies were shot in black and white, but even like a movie like psycho or strangers on a train or whatever, whatever, if Hitchcock can actually do something properly, he finds a different way to go about shooting that sequence. And then a lot of times it revolves around not actually showing the murder, the kill sequence, the the stab wound, whatever it is, right? Because he just couldn't do it at the time because of limitations on, on the budget or special effects, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, or what he could show. And and I get what Weir was going for there. But like, like you said, it, it's a very brief moment and the rest of the scene is really good. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a it, it's an effect that they, they could have worked on a little bit more to, to really drive the brutality home. my my The one scene that I would change would be the shootout in the parking garage. I think it kind of rings a little false when Danny Glover's character walks up behind Harrison Ford. If you were going to to assassinate somebody to pop them, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be walking. You wouldn't be letting them know your presence by your, your footsteps. And you would be the first person to have your gun gun raised. Wait, wait, uh, is this the scene in which the lady in the elevator decides to yeah. open up the elevator again yes. to try to help him out? And then he's like, you idiot. Like, she says, that's my car because they're firing. They're firing away. And she's like, that's my car. <laughs> that that scene to me is probably it was funny, but it probably uh, fits in the least with the rest of the movie. And I feel like he could have figured out a better way to get Harrison Ford's to get John Book wounded. Uh, then that kind of clumsy shootout. I have a feeling that that cop, like, look at how the assassination of the other police officer went down in that bathroom. They did it. Per- they did it exactly how you expect. The guy never had a chance. Uh, you would have done the same thing with with Book. You know, he gets out of his car in his parking bar- garage. You would have been standing in the shadows, and you would have popped him right then and there, and you would have walked away. He would have never even seen you do it. Sorry, I feel like that scene was improvised. Like, there is no way it was written in the screenplay that she opens the elevator a second time and is concerned about her car being shot at. Like, there's that must have been like some extra who walks on set and thinks that she's going to steal the scene and decides to open up the elevator. Because Harrison Ford's reaction is gold. Like, he actually calls her an idiot. Like, he's super pissed off at what she's doing. Like, I feel like that was improvised. That was the best part of that scene. His his is his insane, like his yelling was fantastic. He was pissed. <laughs> but yeah, the shootout I would I would change. It's a small knit again. It's just a a vehicle to get him to the Amish place. But um, you know, it, it could have been done a, a little more elegantly. I think. Uh, all right. So, of all the people in this, there are there's a lot of talent behind this. 
between the performances, the cinematography, and the directing, who is the MVP of, of Witness? Woo, this is tough. I I really want to say Peter Weir, but I think I'm going to have to say Harrison Ford because, first of all, he carries the movie. He's the lead. He's incredible from start to finish. He's also the star power. He's the reason why a lot of people went out to the movie theater to watch the movie. But I think if you had cast Jack Nicholson or Sylvester Stallone, you know, who were initially uh, hired, but they decided to pass on the project. There's no way. I mean, granted, I like sly movies like Copland, but at the time, I don't think this movie would have worked. I don't oh, even think God, Peter no. Weir. I don't think Peter Weir would have decided to direct it. So I think I think uh, Harrison Ford. I mean, he he did come on board before Peter Weir decided to make the movie, and because he decided to to star in this movie, it helped them finance the movie. It helped them get Peter Weir. Again, he was fantastic in the movie, and I think the chemistry between him and uh, and the actress, I think it's far better than what we see in Top Gun. And I do like Top Gun. I like Tom Cruise in that role opposite of her. But I really bought into the chemistry between these two. So, yes, I want to say Peter Weir because his direction is incredible. But I'm, just, I'm, I'm actually going to stick with uh, Harrison Ford in terms of VIP. Yeah, it, it's a very close one for me as well. And if you had picked Peter Weir, I would have picked Harrison Ford. So and since you picked Harrison Ford, I will pick Peter Weir. Uh, I, you know, Harrison Ford's performance is absolutely fantastic and has more subtlety than I've, you know, than I've seen him do in any other role. And you want, I, I wish I would have seen more of that Harrison Ford uh, over the course of his career. He has been in some very good movies and he has turned in strong performances like The Fugitive and, and obviously, in, you know, Indiana Jones. Um, but I would, I would have loved to see, seen even more of this Harrison Ford. It felt so real. Uh, but I, I'll give it to Peter Weir because I think the amount of restraint that he injected in this movie, how he kind of, again, uh, he does the Peter Weir thing where he absorbs you into the environment, you know, all going all the way back to Gallipoli with you know, the dusty, you know, uh, environment of Perth, Australia and Western Australia. Like he just pulls you in uh, with the land and the natural aspects. And he, he is able to evoke these natural performances from Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis just completely, they seem completely invested in their characters, completely absorbed into their characters. Um, and they, they fit so perfectly in their surroundings. It never feels to me like I'm watching actors playing roles. Everything seems completely organic. And that's a trait of Peter Weir movies. And that's one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, and I really wish that we would get more movies from him, but I, I have a feeling he's probably done at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'll give it to him for those reasons, for the, how he creates uh, an environment and, and a world, builds the world. Okay, so now we have the, the, we have the Howard Hawks test. Do you think that Witness passes the Howard Hawks test of at least three good scenes and no bad ones? Well, I think it has five great scenes. Forget about good. Five incredible scenes. So does it have a bad scene? I don't think so. I do not. I mean, I know you you sort of like picked apart the garage shootout sequence, but I don't think it's a bad scene. Me either. Uh, it's problematic. There's a lot of flaws throughout the film. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, no movie's perfect. Um, so I'm gonna say yes, and yeah, no. There's no bad scenes in this movie. Yeah, I'm with you that there's at least five great scenes, and there are boatloads of what I would call really really good scenes uh and there's so many mini stories within this you know the the neighbor the blonde neighbor who's kind of like getting a little jealous of book and 
um, he's got some great scenes with Harrison Ford, some great moments with Rachel and and. Oh, uh, you mean the ballet dancer? Um, yeah. In real he, life, he was a yeah, ballet dancer. I can't pronounce dancer. his name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me either. He's got a Russian name. Um, but uh, yeah, he he's. There's so many things in this movie. It's so rich that it, it has ev- almost nearly every scene I would consider good to really good. Um, even the car, the the car parking lot is the weakest scene for me, and it's it's only by comparison that I say that it's you know I would change it by comparison with all the brilliance of everything else. Uh, so yeah, for me this definitely passes the Howard Hawks test. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, of all time, especially when it comes to the sort of the cop thriller genre. You know what's uh, weird is I don't I don't I, I, I don't understand what the coffee joke is. Like I know it's based on a commercial, but I don't even know what the, what, what it is. Like Okay, it's so one of those there, moments where a like, real like commercial. There's a little story behind that. That's uh Harrison Ford went after a coffee commercial when he was young. That's the story that he tells anyway, is that he went after a coffee commercial when he was young and but he couldn't say the line right and it was honey, that's a great cup of coffee. And he didn't get the job because apparently he could not, no matter how many times he tried it, he could not get the line right. And so they didn't they didn't book him. So he uses that same line right there. Honey, that's a great cup of coffee. And then makes a little crack about it being a commercial. But it was really kind of a, an inside joke that that was a commercial that he never was able to film uh... when he was when he was first starting out as an actor. OK, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always think it's I, I think it's one of those weird things, even if it was a real commercial or whether it was or not, it sounds like commercial line. And it just is what it reinforces sort of the disparity between the two cultures. They are, they all give him blank looks like, what are you talking about? <laughs> They've never seen a commercial before, but you know, in his mind, like that's, that's kind of how we all do that. We all share sort of pop culture with each other and quote movies or, you know, whatever. And uh, it's kind of a, a funny little scene. Uh, so Rick, do you think Witness will stand the test of time, or do you think it has a little too much of its 1985, you know, uh, timestamp on it? No, for sure it will. I mean, there's there's certain things about the movie that people can point at as being somewhat dated, but I don't really think it's dated. I think it's just of its time, right? So when you watch the movie, I mean, maybe like like I did mention the the fake blood at the start of the film. Mm-hmm. Um. You know what? It really depends. It, it, for a casual moviegoer who doesn't notice direction, cinematography, etc., uh, etc., et I think some people might tune out. They might be like, okay, this movie's dated, it's old, it's boring, whatever. But, I mean, who cares about those people? <laughs> like, I think for... <laughs> I think for like serious moviegoers, film buffs, people who know a thing or two about movies, I think that this movie will stand the test of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this movie is a trip into another world that is kind of timeless in many ways because of the way that Amish community functions, that it's almost a period piece. And you had brought up before how, you know, some of the shots seemed like it was, you know, like the shot of her being topless was almost like a period piece with the restraint that was shown. Um And I think that's why even modern day audiences and audiences in the future will always be able to watch this because it's a slice of life from a world they're not familiar with. And that that alone, it makes it kind of timeless, Uh, whether or not it's accurate. I don't know. I'm you know, I don't know enough about the Amish and to know whether this is accurate, but it feels otherworldly. And that's why I think it can easily stand the test of time. Plus, it's just constructed. This is a great, great love story that I think anybody can get into invested in. So clearly there's no Amish people in the film because mm-hmm. they believe that 
I could say what they what they believe in, but I do know that they yeah they don't like to be photographed or they want to be, be captured on film. Yeah, right. So, but clearly the cast and crew did a lot of research, and Kelly McGillis actually lived with an Amish family for I think like a period of like four weeks. Of course, Peter Weir did his research. He was already fascinated with the Amish culture prior to making the movie. I don't know how accurate it is, but it does make me want to learn more about the Amish community, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, nowadays, like, look, if you go on YouTube and you watch one of those YouTubers, like, no offense, and they start reviewing this movie, God forbid, I'm just, uh, I'm, I, I don't even want to know what the hell, what the hell they're going to say. It's probably going to be them just like re- reciting the entire like internet movie database trivia page and saying, this is a good movie or this is dated. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is, a, this is one of those movies that it does help to rewatch this movie several times because you will start picking up the, 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 the subtleties, the expressions on the characters' faces, and you will get a much richer story out of it, much richer character development. You'll catch a lot of it the first time through, but the more times you watch this, the more you start to see. And there there is a an absolute uh, richness to this movie, to every aspect of this movie. I was picking out, you know, textures the, the last time I watched it, you know, just the other day, um, that I had never really noticed before. Just things that Peter Weir somehow photographs different than everybody else. You know, uh, hay in the barn is different in a Peter Weir movie than it is in other movies. He really lets you know that hay is there. <laughs> well, you know, you know, um, last week during our review of Color in a Space, we sort of like briefly mentioned the difference between digital versus film. And the, the bottom line is, is that when you're shooting digital, if you're trying to make your film look like it was shot on film, then in my eyes, I'm like, well, what's the point? Like, why not just shoot in film? Like, if you want it to look like film, just shoot in film, right? But you, you can achieve that effect on digital and make it look like film, but what's the point? And the point is that it's just... It's like, cheaper. It's, just, it's, it's, it's cheaper and it's faster, right? Yep. But I just think that no matter what people say, film looks better than digital because all the great, quote-unquote, so-called amazing uh, film shot on digital to look beautiful and gorgeous to have won Academy Awards, they purposely try to make it look like film in post-production. And the point I'm trying to make here is the guy who shot this film, John Seal, he's an Academy Award winning cinematographer. He, I think he won the Academy Award for the first time for The English Patient, for example. And I really have a problem when they give out an award for cinematography to someone who shoots on digital over someone who shoots on film. Because there's less work involved, and at the end of the day, the end result, what you see on screen, is determined and done and in the editing room, in post-production. So, for example, at this year's Academy Awards, uh, Roger Deakins, who's you know incredible, one of the greatest cinematographers of all time, he wins the Academy Award for a movie, 1917, that's shot on digital, and the entire film is, is, is made to look the way it looks in post-production as opposed to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is actually shot on film. So mm-hmm. what you see on screen when watching Quentin Tarantino's movie is what they actually captured on film, and that's it. And so when I watch this movie and you talk about how gorgeous it looks and how different it looks, I agree with you that there's something about Peter Weir's movies. They have this like dreamlike quality to them. Or it just seems, I don't know if dreamlike's the right word, but it it's unusual because he's so different than all of the directors of his time. Mm-hmm. But I still do think it's because they shot on film. And I think nowadays when I rewatch these older movies and maybe I'm wrong, I notice more the cinematography and the art direction and so on and so forth, because I'm so used to watching digital 
movies and TV shows nowadays that it sticks out and it looks a million times better than it did when I first watched it 20 years ago. Yeah, there is definitely a quality that you, I can't quite, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, versed enough to, to put my finger on it to actually explain it, um, to articulate it exactly. But there's a quality in film that, that digital hasn't been able to quite uh, reproduce. You do notice when you're watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that this is a movie shot on film. It looks like a movie shot on film. And the, the crispness, the over crispness sometimes of um, digital filmmaking kind of gives it away. Um, well, I'm and- sorry, but 1917, I know we're not talking about 1917 right now, but I'm sure a lot of people online have seen that shot of them uh, running through the war fields. That looks like a video game to me. It looks like it's done in front of a green screen because it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I will always choose the natural way of shooting something over something that's recreated in post-production, unless you're doing like a music video or something. That's different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you're going making a stylus- uh, a stylistic choice. But I mean, once again, you know, shooting on film, of course, digital wasn't available to them back then. But shooting on film just, uh, again, emphasizes sort of organic nature of this movie, uh, the earthiness, which I love. It's a very uh, it, it's a very grounded, real, real feeling movie. And that's that's a great thing. You don't get that as much anymore, especially with cop thrillers, which try to be sensationalistic all the time. This is not a sensational, sensationalistic cop movie. This is a very, very grounded one. Um, and I'm glad we got it. And of course, Peter Weir did it because he does not sensationalize anything really in his movies. <laughs> so, uh, all right. With that said, um, wrap up our, our discussion of witness. Um, you can find me, Patrick Murphy, uh, online at goombastop.com. And of course, it's sort of cinema and Rick, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter. I run the official Twitter handle for Goombastop. It is Goomba Stomp Mag. Um, you can listen to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, YouTube, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, on the website uh, GoombaStomp.com and/or SortedCinema.com. I want to thank everyone who's left a rating and review so far. If uh, if you like the show, give us a rating or review on iTunes because it it does help us reach a wider audience. And yeah, uh, for every movie we review. On the podcast, there is always an article on the website. So once again, this week, I decided to write about the movie. So once this podcast is live, I encourage you to head over to GoombaStomp.com and search Witness because you can also read my article about the movie, which comes with screenshots and videos and all kinds of cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, every one of these articles is really, really good. And I also want to say, like, there's been some really nice things, like very nice reviews. So I, I also want to thank everybody for that. That's that's always fun for us to see, um, for sure. All right, that'll wrap it up. Uh, next week, we'll be back with Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Until then. Let it go, Paul! Put the gun down, Book! Let it go! Put that gun down! Let gun down! Let the gun down! Let the gun down! Let the gun down! Let the gun down! Yeah.
Stand back! You're gonna shoot him! Is that what you're gonna do, Paul? Him! <laughs> 